Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small and we help leaders uh, train engagement staff, volunteers, organisers in leadership and power building. And if you want to work out how you can create change in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. When you need support with a legal issue, it can feel daunting. And that's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been helping guide clients with their legal needs. They're here to help you when you need them the most, from workplace to medical injuries, class actions, occupational diseases, and wills and estates planning. And as Australia's leading planner for law firm, they have the local knowledge and the national network with the experience that you can count on. And to find out more, go to morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, and events that will energise the community both online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners, and to find out more, just go to their website, swiftfoxcrm.com, to win your next campaign. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that drops every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And abroad we go, we head to the Holy Land, to Israel, and we speak to Will Cubbertson, who we've had on the show before, but there's been a lot of protests going on in Israel over the last four or five months as the current uh, broad right coalition Netanyahu government is um, making a play on the independence of the judicial system which has led to protests on the street every Saturday night. And we're going to talk to Will about what happened this week and the implications going forward. So uh, looking forward to that conversation with him. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you don't listen to the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And when you don't listen to the episode, leave us a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn. All right, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday evening on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Um, and uh, before I introduce my guest, I just need to let everyone know that, um, no, I haven't smoked 40 packets of Winnie Blues today. Uh, I don't smoke. However, I have managed to pick up a bit of a bug that's clearly going around Melbourne. Uh, so I sound not great. Um, 200 episodes and I've managed to get by not having a cold during one of the recordings. However, uh, it got me today. But luckily enough, you don't have to listen to me that much and you actually the whole point of this podcast is, is to listen to the voices of others um and i'm really glad we're actually doing this episode because there's a lot going on um in the middle east at the moment and we're joined by someone who's been on the show before actually he's a former researcher with the u.s-based analyst institute but he's now a progressive campaign consultant mostly with so- center-left parties in europe but he's based in israel uh will Cubbins, welcome back to socially democratic thanks thanks for having me excited um now i've been wanting to do this an episode on this particular topic for a number of months now because of, the, of what's been going on in Israel, particularly on the center, well, between the center left and the, and the right. Um, but the momentum has been building the protest, the, the weekly protests uh, in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but it came to a head on uh, earlier this week. And I just thought, no, I need to do this episode now because I think I feel like the country in some ways is at a crossroads and I just want to get a sense from, from someone on the ground about, first of all, you know, what has happened, um, how did we get here, and what are the implications going forward? So there's a lot to cover, but for those who haven't really been paying attention um, to our, our non-Israeli audience, obviously we've witnessed months and months of daily protests across Israel amongst moderates and progressives and the broad left against the current right-wing coalition government led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, what was at the heart of this issue that came to a head in the Knesset this week? So uh, I think we talked about, well, I'll do the bigger context on it later, but the the very core of it is, uh, so we've had, Israel had five elections in uh, four years. Uh, at the end of the fourth election, we were able to form a coalition government that was very broad, 
uh, an anti-Netanyahu coalition that was from the one of the Arab parties all the way to uh, a more right-wing party, um, kind of anchored by the center-left, but including a lot of uh, right-wing Knesset members. And when that government collapsed, uh, although we'd had lots of back and forths um, for a variety of reasons I can talk about, the the right-wing won, and Netanyahu was, was able to form a government. And that government is... Uh, by their own admission, I think the most extreme, the most right-wing government the country has ever had. Um, so effectively, the government includes uh, Likud, which traditionally has been the kind of uh, uh, center-right party in the you know many models. It has become increasingly populous, and a, a researcher here has identified it as one of the most populous center-right parties when, if you compare it to the rest of the Western um, OECD world. Uh, and then it also included some, uh, let's say, religious extremists, uh, for lack of a better word. Some of them I call fascist uh, for good reason. Um, and then along with the, the ultra-Orthodox parties. And that's kind of formed the coalition. And they took it upon themselves to pass a series of sweeping reforms uh, to how the judiciary works, to completely... Um, reshape the 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 function of the supreme the israeli supreme court uh and that set off massive protests we've had protests now on a week at least a weekly basis for most of this year um and uh maybe i, I think maybe it's important to talk about scale should mm. i for, so yeah, absolutely so the the protests to just explain just how big these so a recent survey said about twenty percent of people have participated in some form of protest this year. Even if that's high, we're still talking a massive amount of people. For instance, on Saturday night, um, which the biggest protests are every Saturday night. They're in Jerusalem. They're in Tel Aviv. They're in lots of other cities across the country. Roughly, they estimated between 10, 20, 30 protests that there were probably 400,000 people protesting on Saturday night. In population size, that would be the equivalent, I did the math, of 1.2 million Australians. And in the American terms, you know, we had, after Trump was elected, there was the Women's March. There was the big anti-Trump things, the largest protests in America those were three and a half to four and a half million Americans. The same population, this would be three to four times that number. And this was a regular Saturday night, not the largest protest. The largest protest we had back in April was almost double the size, where you had close to 10% of the country out in some place, you know, somewhere in the city, in their own city, or in, in Tel Aviv protesting. So the scale is just, it's really, it's hard to comprehend, honestly. Uh, it's very impressive. The pictures uh, coming back from it, certainly all of those protests, I mean, caught my imagination because I thought, shit, this is fair income. Like, this is real, what's going on here. And and for them to maintain that momentum over the, over the weekends, you know, every Saturday night after Shabbat, you know, getting out there and on the streets and protesting. Um, who, who who makes up, so you've sort of defined who the who was in the, the Netanyahu government of this current iteration Who's on the opposing side? Who are the people? Who are the types of people that are out on the streets protesting against this? Yeah, so great question. There are effectively three groups. Um, I think like that's kind of the best way to describe it. The first is uh, there's not an order of size or anything, but so the first group that is like the easiest to understand are the tech companies. So most of the people who work in the tech sector are they're higher educated, they're higher income. Israel has become this real hub of the tech industry internationally. Uh, a few years ago, I mean, they called a startup nation because I think Israel actually had per capita the most startups um, other than like the Bay Area in, in America, Silicon Valley, so across the world. Um, so these are people who they're mostly working with and selling to um, Western democracies, America, Australia, the UK, Europe etc. They have access to money, they believe in democracy, they believe in democratic principles, um, and and they've fueled a lot of the protests. Um, some of those companies have, you know, gone on strikes for a day, or they've given their employees leave time to go to, sh to protest. 
Um, the owners have donated lots of money, and, and they're a threat to the economy because those those companies can leave. They can be located anywhere in the world. Um, and for instance, like Greece is making a play, and they're saying, you know, if you own a tech company, come here. We'll give you you know low taxes for the first few years, quick citizenship. Like it's a forty five minute flight from home for most people, or an hour. So like it's um you know this is this is the core this is one core group. The the other one that I think will be more interesting to your audience are, for lack of a better word term, what I'll call like regular protesters. So there were a lot of big protests in 2020 against Netanyahu, mostly focused around his corruption charges, this right-wing government, increasingly populist. Um, There were, I think, roughly Saturday night in Jerusalem, 80 to 100,000 people every evening um, for a few months. Not at this this scale, but you know, eighty thousand people, one percent of the country showing up to protest is it's not nothing. You know, that's a pretty impressive organization. Um, but something very very important happened. So in the midst of COVID, um, and Israel's numbers were rising, the government shut down mass events, even even outdoors, and they effectively for a few weeks gave us a one kilometer limit. You couldn't go more than one kilometer from your house. Very, very restrictive. And in theory, like the protest should have stopped, right? You can't have 80,000 people if you can't leave more than one kilometer from your house. Instead, what happened was people started protesting on major street blocks only one kilometer from their house. And in fact, I think my best estimate from what I've seen is the number of people protesting actually doubled. It just happened all across the country rather than only in Jerusalem once a week. And what really mattered for that is that people formed these small communities. You had 5, 10, 20 people all from the same neighborhood who were all upset about Netanyahu's corruption. Um, and they're now in WhatsApp groups together. They're talking to each other. They're connected to some of the more national groups. All of those localized groups have also been a real source of energy, of um, protest movements. You know, every time there's a protest um, where they shut down the highway in Tel Aviv, for instance, on my drive to drop my daughter off at daycare, there's 20 people waving Israeli flags um, in between, you know, our house and daycare. And that, that group only exists because they were protesting before and and they've now grown i'm sure they're much larger than they were um so that's that's a really important group a really important organizing um uh let's say tool or it's just been very incredible to watch actually the movement take off at, at that mass mobilization level um and the last group is i think maybe the most important which is uh reservists so israel had and they've been the, this group called Brothers in Arms have been the face of the protests in a lot of ways. Um, so for your listeners who don't know, Israel has uh, mandatory army service of usually two to three years um, for everybody, with certain exceptions. Um, and this is part of the controversy and part of the fights. But So Arab Israelis don't have to serve. Um, they're not subject to the draft, although many Arab citizens um, do join or they do what's called national service where they, for instance, will work in schools or community centers or things like this. Um, not not super, super many, but like they, they do exist. And especially the Druze, many of them serve in the army, some, some Bedouin. Um, and then, but the, the issue is that because some people only, most people only serve for two or three years, oh, ultra, also the ultra-Orthodox are, mostly exempt. That's also a source of massive conflict. Um, but as you can imagine, training someone like, say, a pilot, that takes time. And, you know, I don't know what it is in other places, but I know, for instance, in America, it's two, three years to train a pilot. Um, and I imagine it's probably very similar here in Israel. And so most of the the Air Force is actually reservists. They're people who come in um you know, some units, people come in for one or two weeks a year. The Air Force, many of them come in once, twice a week, uh, or, you know, once, two, three, four times a month 
to keep their pilot training up at a high level. And these pilots, especially, you know, but reservists in general, they tend to be more secular than the general population, uh, especially these types of reservists, higher education, higher income, much more left. And a lot of these reservists have said the, the contract, the trust between the people and like my service, not me because I didn't serve, but you know, they're saying the contract that I have with the state has been broken by this government. I, I have chosen to serve in the army of a democratic state. I fear that that is being taken away and therefore I don't want to serve. They have threatened to not show up to army service. They have threatened to quit um, reserves entirely. Um, and this has been a real face of the, um, the protest movement. It was the reason why the defense minister, who's, who's from Netanyahu's party back in April, said we have to stop or the, the, gov- the army will collapse. He was then fired by Netanyahu, and then there was massive protests because he was fired. Um, the National Labor Union called a general strike. It was the first general strike in Israel since uh, before the British left in 1947. Uh, that happened for about a day. Uh, the country was completely shut down, and um, the Netanyahu said, okay, we're pausing. And that was in April, and then now here we are in July, uh, passing the very first piece of the bill of the of the reforms. Why now? What what's the what's the urgency from the government to you know, introduce these this legislative reform, which essentially is a, an attack on the independency of the judiciary? I I think there's a few reasons. I mean, it's been brewing for a while. Um, certainly, anger towards the court has been brewing for a while. Um, the as I said, I mean, this was the fifth election. The last four, there was, you couldn't get anything done hardly, uh, either because we were going from election to election, one right after the another, um, or the governments, the the coalition and opposition were split. I mean, 62 seats to 58 type, um, very close where only two, three parties, you know, people can throw everything for a loop. And they feel like this is the opportunity that they have. And if they don't take this chance, it, it could be years before they get this opportunity again. Uh, you also have uh, the Likud party has become much more extreme in the last few years. So you have people in power who represent kind of that extreme populist base all of a sudden, rather than some of the people in Likud who uh, used to represent a more moderate center-right have either left the party because they're mad at Netanyahu or they don't believe him anymore or um, they're upset at the corruption, um, or those people who used to be second, third, fourth on the list and got very important ministries in the Likud primaries were getting 10th, 12th, 15th, and they're now just regular backbenchers rather than ministers. Um, and so it's kind of the, the rise of the extremes. And also like, I think they feel like if we don't do it now, it may never happen. And some of them have wanted this for 10 years or more. And talk to us about the, the, um, the, the goal of this particular reform, the the view, if, what, what is the view of the, the extreme elements of this coalition towards the judiciary and what does it represent to them as opposed to what it means to um, moderate center-left or secular Israel? Yeah. So I guess, I mean, let me give the, the background context, I think, for the listeners that just like a very simple. So when Israel was founded, there was no formal constitution. Um, and then after a couple of years, the idea was that they would pass what we call basic laws. And the idea was that we'd pass some laws that weren't laws, they were something above a law that would then later be able to form the basis of a constitution. Um, and then in the 90s, they passed a law about human dignity and liberty. It was pretty much the idea of it was take the concepts of freedoms and rights, which were in the Declaration of Independence, signed in, in the 40s, along with um, kind of a more broad understanding of what it means to be a democratic state, 
and and write these down in, in more formalized language. Um, and what happened at that moment was in the Supreme Court was a justice, Justice Barack, who um, said, oh, this this is our time. This is an opportunity. And he massively expanded the court's powers. So all of a sudden, the court took an active role in um, kind of overturning government decisions, overturning laws that were done poorly or, you know, violated other more basic principles. Um they gave uh, standing so that almost anyone in the country can sue for almost any reason or put a petition before the high court, which is very unlike most courts um, in the Anglo world, I think, but is not uncommon in other places. And so this created a lot of opposition. So I think there's there's two forms of this opposition. One is ideological, right? There are people on the, the right and the center right who opposed this idea. Um, they, some of them kind of thought, okay, the court should be able to overturn laws, but it's become way too activist, way too extreme in, in doing this, and we need to kind of push it back or change the relationship. And then there are some who just blanket believe that the court should have no ability. The Knesset is elected, it should therefore be supreme, 61 votes should just be able to override any decision. A law is a law. That's that. Yeah. I, I clearly disagree with this kind of extremist view, but like that's it's it's there. And the second is is more policy based, right? Especially among the ultra orthodox and some other groups, they're mad about the decisions the court has made, um, and for lots of good reasons uh, from their perspective. Things like um, civil, how civil marriages are dealt with because Israel doesn't have civil marriage, but they're, they're recognized if they're performed abroad. It's very annoying, some of the stuff. Um, this fight between should the ultra-Orthodox be subject to the draft or not, all these sorts of things, the, the ultra-Orthodox are upset at the court. Um, and like, there's also kind of this populist anger. So, uh, you know, in Israel, um, was founded in large part the 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 organs of the state was founded largely by ashkenazi jews jews from europe um and um it starting in you know late 40s early 50s into the 60s um most the now the majority of jews are mizrahi or sephardi jews and they come from places that were, for instance, controlled by the Spanish Empire or by the Ottomans, um, places like Iraq, Morocco, Egypt, uh, Syria. Um, and they have faced significant discrimination um, in, in the past. And those gaps in education and income, they've closed a lot, but there is still discrimination. Um, and there's a lot of resentment about this. And there's a view that... Um, the Knesset has become more right-wing over time and has become more, uh, you know, Mizrahim have become more, you know, part of the Knesset and have taken on more more positions of power, a uh, better reflection of the, the country's demographics. And the court doesn't reflect that. Uh, the court is still much more, um, it is more Ashkenazi than, than the country. And that this has created a lot of resentment towards the court for that reason. This idea that, oh, it's just the Ashkenazi elite. We're second class citizens. The court doesn't reflect us. And so all of these things have kind of bubbled up and kind of uh, that's the that's the that's the push. That's what's happening is this ideological, the policy, the resentment. It's all come together. Now that you've opened up that can of worms <laughs> about uh, some of this, this is the cultural and um, societal changes or differences within the country. I, I do want to think. Burning question that for me is: is how did we, how did we get here? Because and you know, it's worth having that continue on that history lesson. Will for some of our, some of our listeners are not familiar with it, but um, you know, leaving aside all the sort of the anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic tropes about Israel as a modern state. You know, as a young nation, as a young modern nation from 1948 onwards, it was seen as this, you know, socialist utopia. Uh, that you know, the pillars of is of a modern Israel were built on you know the history, the the, the the you know the union movement by the ACTU in Australia, uh, kibbutz, uh, kibbutzism, which is essentially you know is a communal living and sharing each other's 
um, you know, uh, um, goods and life. Yeah. Uh, the Labor Party, secular, progressive. Uh, this was Israel, right? I mean, up until the 19, late 1960s, the Soviet Union was still playing footies with the Israeli government because they were trying to create some alliance there, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, and we've had such great Labor leaders over the history of the state. But now, you know, Labor as a party struggles to get five, six, seven seats in the Knesset. Yeah. Uh, the the broad left broad struggles to form a majority. Um, what has happened in Israel society that uh, we're in the situation now that Netanyahu can rope together this sort of coalition of people that you know would have Ben Guron turn you know turning in his grave? Uh, well, the fact that he'd be turning in his grave was actually part of the problem, to be honest. Um, so early on, the um, the the left labor movement, which really built the organs of the state um, and created this country, um, so as a labor party member, still somehow, uh, even with only four seats, um, there's there's stay strong. There's ten of us, I think, but no. Um, <laughs> so we, um, what happened was, I think there was an arrogance of uh how people were acting and there was this idea amongst many of the ashkenazi founders of the state in the 50s and 60s uh there's this image of uh, these kind of let's frankly like just racist uh views of the jews who came from arab countries the idea is that Jews from places like Yemen were stupid, they were backwards, they were still religious, um, you know, they were still religious, they still kept kosher, and most of them kept, kept Shabbat, um, and that was viewed as being somehow backwards in time um, and, and not worthy of any respect. And the stories about some of these people and where they were put when they first came to the country in the 50s and 60s are, are horrible, frankly. I mean, literally, they were practically put in tents in the middle of nowhere and just kind of said, yeah, I don't know, build a life, go for it, who cares? Um, and lots of discrimination, um, lots of barriers to proper education, things like this. Their children and their grandchildren um, have since become full active members of society. Um, and, but there's a lot of resentment and family resentment. Um, you know, people who grew up hearing real stories of, of racism that their parents faced um, or their grandparents and, and carry that, you know, resentment with them. Um, and then what happened was in this, after the 19th, after the six day war, there was of course the, the Yom Kippur war, and it was a surprise to the country. Um, and, and that shook the foundations of the Labor Party, first of all. And then um, there, was a, there was actually a Black Panther movement in Israel modeled after the American Black Panthers, um, made up of these Sephardi youth. Um, and I don't remember the exact story, but when Golda Meir, who was uh, prime minister, she was asked about them and... Um, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was about as condescending a reaction as one could imagine. I mean, just really, you know, anyway. So then Begin comes to power and Begin um, on the right, he combines a sort of right wing ideological um, Ashkenazi people like actually Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, father, um, this revisionist movement um, from Europe, along with the a respect for Sephardi culture, Sephardi people. And that combination kind of brings them to power. Um, and then since then, it's there was a back and forth from the 70s to the 90s. And then the Oslo peace accords happen. Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated. Um, and then in 2000, the second Intifada kicks off. And this, this collapse of frankly, kind of collapse of Oz, the post-Oslo implementation and the second intifada effectively destroys the left in Israel. Um, and so most the, the most Jewish Israelis, pretty close to a majority, identify as 
right wing right now. Um, and then another, I don't know, 30, 35% or so identify as center and only a very small percent, 10% or so uh, identify as left. And that center is mostly people who would have voted for the old later labor party or they, they did vote or their parents voted for the old labor party. Um, and they have, there's a cynicism towards the peace process that, you know, it's kind of anyway, so it's, it's complicated, but that's kind of where we're at. And at this point now, a majority of the Jews in Israel are, are of Sephardic descent, although there's a lot of intermarriage and intermixing these days. Um, and yeah, so then, and then also, in addition to all of this, you also then have, um, in the 90s especially, you have a million Jews coming into Israel from the former Soviet states. Um, and they tended to be, they tend to vote much more right wing. Um, but, you know, again, problems of integrating with the state, which have created issues. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a, a quick history lesson for where we're at. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. And, to, and take us to this moment now, because to me, I mean, reading some of the articles um, on the, you know, on the progressive side of journalism, like the New York Times and uh, and Haritz and that, it, it it feels like this moment is a make or break moment for 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 Israel. Um, and seeing the reaction by some members of the Knesset on the floor when the vote was happening. Um, on the left, you know, just people breaking down in tears or just yelling, but also stories of members within the Likud arguing with each other uh, in trying to seek potential compromises. I understand the, the history to put forward some late um, suggestions about how we could sort of get, get, get themselves out of this. Um, I, I just felt like it was, and I think there's a, um, a, holiday, to, a holiday tomorrow commemorating yeah. the fall of the Second Temple. Um, and there was an article today talking about the, the similarities about what happened then to what is happening now to modern Israel. And I just, you know, I feel for um, what's going on in the country right now. I just kind of wanted to get a sense from you. But is it this dramatic or are we overplaying this a bit? Um, I, yes and no. Um, it is this dramatic. I mean, this is uh, Netanyahu has increasingly over the last few years become uh close ideological allies with uh the far the rising far right in europe um so he you know has been a friend to orban um a lot of the bills that they've put forward are, are really they're straight out of the orban playbook and the um the Poland the what the pis in poland has been doing um and, you know actually speaking to each other right not just like you know, like literally meeting about how to do some of this stuff. Um, and some of this is a question of what does it mean to live in a democracy? Um, and the kind of, you know, more broad center view of democracy being the place where, you know, elections matter and the, the will of the ma majority matters, but also where the minority maintains rights and is respected and given a place at the table um, versus a kind of raw power 50% plus one means you get to change everything. Um, and that is, that is at the core of this fight right now. Um, and they're losing that fight uh, ideologically and they know that, and that's part of what's happening, right? So one of the things that has really, I think highlighted how dangerous this moment is, is there's a lot of right wing voices, people who actually support some pieces of the judicial reform package who have come very strongly out against this. Um, and that there's two reasons. The first is these bills go too far. They go way too far. And there's also a lack of trust in who's implementing them. 
right? So, um, you know, it's like one of those things where people who want court reform, but they they don't want the um, they don't want these people like Ben Gavir, these fascists, to be the ones deciding who's you know who, what's happening. Um, and and it's also important to to see the judicial reform in the context of all the other laws, right? So they're talking about changing the relationship between the court and the Knesset and and what is and isn't democracy. At the same time, they're doing things like um, effectively cutting out requirements that ultra orthodox children get basic education in math and science uh, and English studies. They're um, trying to fund a private militia for Ben Gavir, who's the the, prime, the current police minister, um, who has said, you know, he's the police minister is, um, or whatever he's called, um, he is uh, internal security, I think is, is the official title, but he has um, criticized the police for not being violent enough towards protesters who have blocked highways, right? He wants police violence. He really, really wants it. Um, he's tried to fire police officers. Um, and this government has talked about, for instance, giving him the ability to hold Israeli citizens without trial, um, without charges, and to significantly expand the powers of the state towards towards Israeli citizens. And so it's like, okay, well, you're going to change this relationship and you're going to put our rights in the hands of these people who are fundamentally untrustworthy and, un- and terrible. So, uh, you know, on Monday when they passed this bill between Sunday and Monday, people who came out against the bill included the former head of Mossad Israel spy agency, who is a very close Netanyahu advisor. Uh, the former president, Ruby Rivlin, who was a, he was the speaker of the Knesset for Likud elected by Likud to the presidency of the state, who said this bill is, is too far. He spoke at an anti-reform protest. Like this is, um, you know, uh, Trump's ambassador to, for, to Israel, who's a very right-wing person, David Friedman. He's helped fund settlements, right? Like he, this is a guy who's very, very much in the settlement building arena who said, look, we need to pause. This is too much. It's too far. It's too fast. It's, there's not enough consensus. You need to pull back. And I have no doubts that Rivlin and, and Friedman want some form of judicial reform. And there's probably, I think, best estimate, probably 20, 30% of the population, at least, who wants a form of judicial reform, but doesn't want this, this form of it. And that also is fueling it, right? Because, um, for instance, the polls uh, just on, which, you know, we should take with a grain of salt, but the... The right-wing coalition, which currently has 64 seats in most polling, is below 55. So they would elect a, potentially, if, a, if an election was held tomorrow, the most likely outcome would be a center-left coalition with a majority of seats, even without one of the, two of the Arab parties. So there's three Arab parties in the Knesset right now. Even if two of them didn't join, um, there would be a, a big enough coalition for the left. And that that gives more power to the extremists, right? Because they're saying, look, we're still going to get our 10 seats, whether we win or lose, whether we have a government. Likud could potentially drop from the mid-30s to the mid-20s. Okay, do you really want to go to an election? Do you, Or can we pass all of this legislation we want? And it's all kind of coming together in a, a just a, a, really, a really upsetting uh, concoction. Upsetting is the word. I, I think I it was a Noah Tishby I saw on CNN during the week saying that most Israelis don't agree with this um, this judicial reform. Yet, you know, this is the this is who you voted for. I mean, you've had about thirty elections in the last twenty minutes, and then the last time this is who you put up. Um, I, I'm wondering, are there a lot of Israelis who might have been protesting in the last two or three months that didn't go cast their ballot at the last election? Is the current Knesset a true representation? I don't know, it's not compulsory voting in Israel. That's something we're fortunate about in Australia. You know, even in the darkest days of the Liberal governments here in Australia, I can't complain about our democracy, right, because 95, 6, 7% of the Australian population go vote. 
Um, maybe we haven't done a good enough job in the campaign in informing them about their vote, but sure enough, they've gone and voted. Um, yeah. Were there? A, you've had so many elections recently. Was it almost like election fatigue from some folks that didn't turn out to vote, and then are now regretting that they didn't go and actually exercise their democratic right? I, it's actually, I think it's the opposite. We had high turnout in the last election, um, and that's part of what happened. So there were two groups that turned out at much higher than expected numbers. Um, initially, the Arab um, turnout was expected to be only about 40%, and it always lags behind uh, Jewish turnout. But the because one of the Arab parties had joined the coalition and the others had stayed out, um, the other three had stayed out, um, there was a lot of questions. Did that Arab party joining the government did they succeed? Did they bring anything to Arab society or not? Should we join in future coalitions or should we completely stay out? And this created a lot of, you know, confusion also for voters. Um, and then those three parties split into two and you had two parties who were going to run together and, and one party who was going to run separately. Um, and that, you know, drove turnout way down, you know, expect the turnout way down again, because if people, people is Arab society views this as if they're not, if the Arab parties aren't cooperating, maybe it's not worth voting. Um, and if they're not being listened to, if they're not being taken seriously by the center left, by the Jewish parties, then also what's the point? Um, and instead what happened was there was much higher turnout and for a lot of reasons and, and a, a large number of Arab Israelis showed up and that, um, that boosted the the blocking percentage. So in Israel, to get a seat in the Knesset, it is fully proportional. But any list or any party or collection of parties that run together, they need 3.25% of the vote. And what has happened is merits on the, the, the far left of the Jewish spectrum um, has been pretty consistent in the amount of votes that they've gotten over the years. And when turnout went up, their vote did not go up enough to account for that increase in turnout. They went below the threshold. And then also one of the Arab parties, they also were, uh, I think, at like 2.8% or something like that. Um, and so that's those two parties being below the threshold is one reason why Netanyahu did better. He also got more Likud voters to show up, like more of his base to show up um, than in some past elections. And so the combination of all of these things, and there's people who are mad about labor, should labor and merits have run together? And there were good reasons for them not to. But anyway, so that was like, that's created a whole thing. But yeah, so I don't know that this is really a... I don't think it's fair to say that it's a reflection of the country also because... You know, the right wants to say, oh, we have 64 seats. We we ran on this issue. Therefore, this is a mandate to do everything we want. And first of all, the core of the election was it wasn't about judicial reform. It was about cost of living. And should an Arab party be in the in the uh, coalition? Right. So there's a certain amount of anti-Arab resentment, which moved voters to the right or got people to show up. Um, and. Prices in in, Amer in Israel were going up just like they were going up in a lot of the world. Netanyahu said, we're going to make cost of living better. Lapid can't solve this. I can. Um, and they've made cost of living worse here, actually, since then. I mean, like, literally just yesterday, uh, prices of bus tickets and train tickets went up 12%. Um, so clearly things are not getting cheaper. Um, but... Uh, the they've said oh we have a mandate for this and and what the polls show is is they don't have a mandate i mean most of the recent polling shows at best 50 percent of likud voters actually support these these uh reforms and a significant chunk of the right wants the reforms only with uh consensus and a, some sort of compromise with some amount of center-left parties um, they don't want to ram this through. I mean, a, a, a version, I think there was a poll yesterday that was, I think they asked something along the lines of, do you want to pass these reforms unilaterally? Do you want to pass them with compromise? Or do you want to not pass them at all? And only about 22%, I think, 
of voters said of the population said they want to pass these laws, the right to just pass these laws no matter what. Um, so they're, the right's talking point is sticking to that 64 seats as if it's a mandate while ignoring the survey saying quite the opposite. So, yeah. Let's talk about implications, and I'm going to start with the Supreme Court. Or the high, is there a chance of them striking this law down whilst they've got a chance? Because they're in the, the Knesset's in recession now, isn't it? Not recession in um. Yeah, yeah they're on break. Well. Not, they're on. They're yeah, on a. Break. Well, I think uh, the end of this week or next, they're on a two month a two month break. There's a summer holiday. Right, and then, yeah, recent. Cool. There you go. Uh, uh, summer holidays, and then you know we have a lot of very big important uh, religious holidays coming up, and and they're they don't meet during that time. Um, I mean, so immediately within hours of this bill passing, uh, a number of NGOs and Yesha Teed, the biggest center left party run by former, now former prime minister, Yair Lapid, uh, they filed petitions for the laws to be struck down. Um, there was a report that, uh, a lot of the, the president of the Supreme court and a few uh, minis- a few judges were actually at a judicial conference in Europe and like rushed back on Monday because they know these petitions need to be heard as quickly as possible. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I read an article in Haaretz, uh, I think it was yesterday, and it quoted three different legal scholars, um, two of whom are both from an institute I have a lot of respect for, um, and they all gave different answers. One was they have no basis on which to strike down this law. Uh, obviously, that was the more right-wing opinion. Uh, from the, the think tank, I really I really appreciate the Israel Democracy Institute. I, I worked there for a year. It's, it's a wonderful kind of very broad uh, collection of people from the left actually to the right uh, engaged in this question of what does it mean to be both Jewish and democratic and what, what's the future of the state look like? And one of them from this institute said uh, they can strike the law down, but they won't. And one said they can strike the law down and they should and they will. I don't know. I, I don't know. And then if they do strike it down, what's the implication of that? I mean, I, exactly. I, I have no idea. I mean, and, you know, there's also a headline today. So a few weeks ago, the Knesset passed a law or a couple months ago. They passed a law saying that this agreement that while Netanyahu is on a corruption is on trial for corruption, that he can't interfere with these sorts of um, laws, which would change the shape of the judiciary. Um, And he's broken that um, court agreement. Um, And so the high court needs to hear a case soon, effectively saying, Kent, is it okay that he broke that? And if so, and if not, you know, what are the legal implications for the prime minister because he broke that agreement? And again, I don't know how they how they will uh, rule in that, but you can imagine there is a potential opportunity here for an even larger constitutional crisis um, between the branches. Can, as a side note, can I say your judiciary moves too slowly because it feels like that Netanyahu's been under these corruption charges now for about a decade, and I just don't know when the hell this is going to get heard and sorted out, right? Years, years. They they are on a path. I read in our there's some coverage recently. They're talking about um, another three or four years for his trial to take. Oh my God. It's it's and it's it's one of these situations. I've gone on rants about this. You know, in America, we have a, an amendment to the Constitution that says you have a right to a fair and speedy trial. And um, whether Netanyahu is is guilty or innocent, the the length of this legal process is obscene. You know, if he's guilty, then he shouldn't still be in power. And if he's not guilty, then let him go forth and, you know, run the country or not, right? Like, let him just be free of these charges. Um, and it's one of these things where I'm up to the point where I don't even care. Just get it over with. Just finish yeah, exactly. the trial. I think he was indicted three years ago, three, four years ago. He was indicted and the trial might conclude in 2027, 2028. It's obscene. It's absolutely yeah. obscene. Uh, the history of it, I saw that they, um, obviously, I mentioned before that they made a sort of a last-minute attempt to broker a compromise. Are we going to see a general strike as a response to this decision? I don't know, still. Um, uh, just yesterday, uh, all the doctors, not in hospitals and certain clinics, but all the doctors went on strike for 
in the end, it was about six hours, and then they were ordered back to work by by the legal court, uh, by one of the courts. Um, I I don't know. I mean, because they're in because they're in recess. Like, does a does a general strike actually stop anything? Right. Like, if there's no one in the building. But on the other hand, this is a, a, a real and ongoing threat to the country. Um, and the coalition has talked about multiple members of the coalition said, this is just the first step and we're going to do more as soon as we come back. Um, and, but on the other hand, how do you sustain a protest movement over the next two months? Um, when they're not in session and it's, I mean, it's a summer holiday for a lot of people. I, I, I really, I really don't know. It is a, it's the million dollar question I think right now in my mind is, how do we sustain this this level of engagement? Um, but look, I mean, people have been protesting now for close to eight months, seven, eight months. I mean, they can continue. I mean, that clearly the anger and the resentment um, will continue and there will continue to be people unhappy with this coalition and not wanting anything else. What shape that takes, I, I don't know. I, I still don't know. Well, I think you've answered my next question, actually, which was, you know, with this mass movement of protests happening each week, I mean, how, where do you, you know what it's like is a, from an organiser standpoint, this is an apex moment, right? And normally what happens is we stop, we take a breath, we reflect, and then we go again. And I'm just wondering, I mean, reading some of the articles about the organisers of these protests, they're like, oh, we'll be back next Saturday. But I'm just wondering to what level will the people be back there with them? Yeah, I mean, I think April's in, instructive here. So during Passover, the Knesset went on went on break for about a month. Um, they were going to pass these bills, and then the defense minister said we shouldn't. He was fired. Everyone went out in the streets. There was a general strike. Um, they shut down the bills, and then they went on break like two days later. And then everyone just sat there for a month, right? And you would think, oh, well that's it. That's the end of the protest movement. Um, and I think that's what Netanyahu was counting on. Um, and instead they still had 200,000 people between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv every Saturday night for the whole month of the break. So, you know, and I mean, again, for the Australian audience, 200,000 people, could you imagine if Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra had 600,000 people between them every single weekend, it, it'd be a huge deal still. Yeah. Um, and we kind of we've gotten to the point now where it's like, oh, it's only 200,000 people. It's only 150,000 people in Tel Aviv. Who cares? And that's that's it's crazy. It's like it's really um, it's absurd to think of that as nothing. It's it's an incredible moment for the state. It's actually I should say here, it's one of my you know, there's been some absurd comments about this will lead to civil war and where. I think the one moment of hope that I've had the last few days is that civil society in Israel has shown itself to just be incredibly strong. Um, and uh, it's really amazing how much time and effort people are willing to put in to protect the state that they believe in and the shape of that country. Um and there was an image, you know, you asked about what it's really like. There was an image a couple days ago where on Monday the or Sunday night, I think it was, the pro-reform people held, held a, an event in Tel Aviv. So the, the right wing held, held an event in Tel Aviv and the left wing held, held an event in Jerusalem outside the Knesset. And there was video of people um, using the escalator in the train station in Jerusalem to go back home. And people were shaking hands, you know, as the the right wing was coming up and the left wing's coming down, people are shaking hands across the elevator. And I think actually that, you, you know, you really realize that there are a lot of people who support reform, who really do want to compromise. There are a lot of people who are protesting out of a real love for the country. You know, there's a reason why both both sides have used the Israeli flag everywhere you know right it's it is a real sense of patriotism on both sides and i think that that's my hope is that like that these really crazy fascist uh individuals like ben gavir they can only go so far before everyone else is gonna say no like this is obscene we're not doing this we're not we're not behind this um 
Uh, yeah, so I, I, I still hold out a lot of hope for us. Uh, picking up on that point, you made the symbolism of the Israeli flag by the protesters against the the against the um, the far right's um, attack on the courts was interesting for me because it was almost saying to the because obviously you see a lot of the pictures um, coming back from Israel whenever there's been um, protests in settlements and so conflicts between the far right or the settlement movement against um, Palestinians. The Israeli flag is kind of really you know shoved in protesters faces in a way right um but for the the left or you know i won't say the left but the more moderate parts secular parts of the protest movement to grab that israeli flag and say hey we love this country but we're not going to let you dictate to us what that means uh and what and and the symbolism of that yeah and i mean it also reflects though um you know a certain uh you know mostly not exclusively but uh, in many of the weeks, Arab Arab Israeli voices have been excluded from the protests, um, and there's a certain tension there. Um, and you know, and certainly some of the Arab parties were like, "Well, why should we participate? All you want to keep is the status quo, and the status yeah. quo is terrible for us, and it's terrible for our Palestinian friends and family." Um, and that tension is real, um, and it's kind of one of those. I don't know, you know, you have to put on your hat where it's like, well, on the one hand, it's real and I care about that. On the other hand, like, you know, if we lose the status quo, things are only going to get worse, yeah. right? Handing handing someone like Ben Gavir, handing someone like our finance minister, Smotrich, who said that an Arab village should be wiped off the map, um, handing someone like that the ability to arrest anyone that they want for as long as they want is terrifying for everybody, Right. And it certainly will not make the situation for Palestinians better. Um, on the other hand, the question is, is can we actually use this momentum to change things? Can we, for instance, change uh, the use of administrative detention um, against uh, you know, certain Palestinians? Can we change the shape of that because of this momentum we have and respect for the rule of law? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath for that. But it's... Um, I, I certainly know that there are activists out there who are going to do their best. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the, the really nice things is, you know, is getting, just getting people to talk to each other about these topics, talk about the rule of law. We're already going to be making progress and already those organizations, which have been advocating for changes over the last 20 years, they're going to find a different conversation now going forward because people are really thinking, what does it mean to live in a democracy? And that's, that's yeah. my only, only real source of hope going forward with that. It's an interesting point you make. That was my question was, I mean, what are the implications for Israeli, uh, Arab Israelis living in Israel, but also then by extension, your Palestinian brothers and sisters in the, in the West Bank, you've gone to answer that in some ways, but I, I did read that some spokespeople from Arab, Israeli parties were saying, yeah, like, why are we going to get involved in this? It's just the status quo. And I get that. But also there is an opportunity here for change and for you to be a part of that. If truly Israel is supposed to be a pluralist state that is not a, not a, a solely a Jewish state, but a state that is made up of different communities. And, and this is this is a source of, of real like active debate within the Arab society, right? Like when, when Ram, when the, the, more more religious uh religious islamic uh, arab party joined the last coalition um and the the much more secular and left arab parties stayed out this was a real contentious debate between them should an arab party cooperate with some things that it really dislikes because it will bring money and resources which arab citizens desperately need yeah. Or should they stay out and um, and you know push for other changes? And I'll, I, I certainly it's not my place to answer that for them. But this is a very real active debate amongst Arab citizens of the country that is like it's it's really fascinating. Um, and I think a question for the center left for the the more left wing parties for Labour and Merits and Yeshatid is. Can they take Arab voters seriously? Can they take the Arab citizens of this country 
seriously as potential partners? Can they sit down at the table and talk about these issues? Um, can they appeal to Arab voters? Can they ask for the votes of Arab citizens? Um, and if we if they can do that, then maybe maybe we'll also get more integration and and, and more changes going forward. Last question um, really goes to the heart of uh, the coalition because you know you've been on the show before. In fact, I think the last time you were on the podcast, we were the, this rainbow coalition had just been formed, and we were discussing about this mo- moment, historical moment in Israeli politics, and would it last? And unfortunately, it didn't. Um, this current uh, government. Um, do you think this will last? Because I did note some fractions uh, f- and um, and schisms starting to form already over this debate. And you've already talked about a number of people who historically have been Likud people have come out against uh, yeah. this agenda. And I'm wondering if this is going to last. No, no way. Uh, I, I, it will not last the full four years. I feel pretty confident about that. They barely passed the budget a few months ago. There was... Uh, really right down to the wire whether or not they would actually pass a budget. Um, because if they hadn't passed a budget, I think it was the end of May. Um, yeah, if they hadn't passed a budget by the end of May, there would have been elections three months later automatically. Um, and they they really pushed themselves to the limit to get there. Um, and the budget they created is a complete mess, <laughs> an absolute embarrassment to anyone who knows what math is. Um, so... What you have, though, is you have a coalition that can be brought down by any of the individual parties. Um, and Netanyahu knows that he can't push too far on some of these judicial reforms, or literally the state will cease to work, and they will have to go to new elections because you know you can't have a general strike, and you can't have no army, uh, you know, or an army at fifty percent capacity. Um, in the midst of the world we live in and the threats from Hezbollah and Iran, and just, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, but the the UTJ, the United Toward Judaism, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party said a few days ago, like, look, a, a bill that allows the Knesset with only 61 votes to overturn any opinion of the court has to pass. That's part of our agreement we will like we will take down this government if that doesn't happen um and you know they'll get the same number of seats next time so they don't care um and the far right these people like especially ben gavir um apparently this is a the rumor was that on monday Netanyahu was negotiating with all of these groups and um there was agreement supposedly from the the two ultra orthodox parties that they would um have some sort of compromise um and this bill wouldn't pass that they would you know they pass some opposition amendment to it it would go back to committee they give everybody time to cool down and you know come to some sort of compromise um and supposedly the two people who brought down that compromise were Levin, uh, the Likud uh, justice minister, who was seen arguing on the Knesset floor, literally, like I'm sitting here, Netanyahu, with the defense minister and the justice minister yelling at each other. And the defense minister saying, you have to give me something, give me something to keep the army together. Um, and Levin saying no. And Levin clearly won as you can see by the fact that they took a selfie, uh, you know, he took a, a selfie in the middle of the Knesset uh, floor to celebrate. And, and Ben Gavir from the, the far right said, no, I won't, there will be no compromises. And, and Ben Gavir also believes that he can be as extreme as he wants and he might gain seats, that he might actually get more seats in the next Knesset for being more extreme. And for, for and so, you know, Ben Gavir uh never would have had a hope of being in the Knesset until Netanyahu helped him form a coalition with some of these other groups. I mean, his party was getting 30, 40,000 votes when you need more like 150 to get into the Knesset. Um, so from his perspective, his worst case scenario is what? Well, the government collapses. Well, if it's not going to do what he wants, what does he care, right? So he believes 
there's this belief that demographics are on their side. And even if they lose the next election, they'll win the election after that. And he'll come back and he'll have 10 seats instead of six or whatever it is now. And who cares? You know, I'll just only come back stronger and stronger and we'll win eventually no matter what. So if I take down this government and and Netanyahu, it's going to have to balance between, you know, these these kind of like really like people willing to just play chicken uh, against the entire state and the organs of the state. Um, and there's no way there's no way to square those circles. He's going to choose badly no matter what. So, you know, if it's not going to collapse in two months or a month, it's going to collapse sometime. There will be, in my belief, there will be elections in 2024. Maybe 2025, but I'm still betting on 2024. There you go. Well, when they do, we'll have to have you back on again to talk about it. <laughs> um, well, Will, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to wish you and everyone else out there that are obviously fighting for a strong liberal democratic israel um in the coming months i know that yes this week hasn't been a great week but um you know keep working away um it's uh we gotta you know gotta use your voice and get organized and do the things that we need to do to try and maintain you know a strong liberal democracy in uh, israel so we thank you for your time on today's show yeah thank you thank you so much thanks for listening to socially democratic did you like the podcast Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Today's episode of Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians, and they've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around, and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means that you'll get the best results possible. To find out more, go to their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.